many of you have taken precepts and refuge before and know what it means and have done it here with me or at other places, but some of you haven't. So it does need a bit of explanation. And again, it's totally voluntary. There has to be an understanding in one's mind and a feeling in one's heart that one wants to do this and that one is actually able to give oneself to that. The same applies to everything else that we have done in this meditation course and would ever do in any meditation course. It has to be a voluntary giving oneself. The more one hangs on to the self, the more one keeps oneself apart and separate, the less one can do it, of course. The more one thinks one knows, the less one is able to learn, which is true in any learning situation. The more one has this idea of, I want to do it my way, the less one can do it the Buddha's way. So doing it my way is certainly not the Buddha's way. And uh, precepts and refuge are not doing it my way at all. Precepts and refuge are doing it the Buddha's way. And they entail two things. The refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha means that we recognize our own fallibility and our own (coughs) minuteness and our own difficulties with our constant desires. I want it warm when it's cold and cold when when it's uh, warm and I want it comfortable when I'm sitting and then I lie down and if I don't get it comfortable, I don't like it and all these things that are constantly preying on our minds which obviously wouldn't be preying on a Buddha's mind. So... When we see ourselves in the way we really are and don't think it's somebody else's fault that we're like that, but realize that it's our own fault that we're like that, we also can make a determination that we would like to be otherwise, namely peaceful, happy, accepting, giving, generous, loving, and all the rest of those good virtues which are the Buddha's way. Everything else is not the Buddha's way. So when we are taking refuge, we are recognizing the fact that there's something much greater than ourselves, something which is far beyond this pettiness and peevishness which we have in our minds, which we can get rid of while we're being concentrated and have meditative absorptions, but it comes back all the time. And then when we have that recognition, we can also have a determination and a giving of ourselves, namely a determination to foster and cultivate the seed of enlightenment that we all have within, which nobody that hasn't touched upon it knows about, doesn't even know what it's like. It's an unseen, unknown seed until we touch it.
when we touch it with heart and mind, we know what it's like. And then when we know what it's like, then we can have that determination that we would like to cultivate it to the point where it eventually flowers and flourishes. We can also have the feeling that the Buddha is the symbol of enlightenment and the enlightenment principle is our pathway. Now, when we take the Buddha as a symbol and principle of enlightenment and as our pathway, everything else falls by the wayside. We still eat, drink, sleep, go to the toilet, have a shower, talk to people, sometimes about nothing at all. We still make money if we have a job. We still look after our household, but it's all just by the way. It needs to be done. It's responsibility that we have. There are things that are needed to keep the body alive. There are things that are needed because other people depend on us. <coughs> all these things are our duties and our responsibilities. But once we know that we are on the Buddha's pathway, and that's everybody's own idea whether they are or they aren't, when, when one knows one is on the Buddha's pathway, then that becomes one's priority. And then that determination and that oneness with that kind of direction is not only the most important thing, but everything else has no significance. It just is. And if it is, if it is and doesn't have that same kind of significance, it can no longer hurt us. And it can no longer upset us. It can no longer worry us. It can no longer make us afraid. As long as we have all this other stuff in our minds, that peevishness and pettiness and that blaming others for our own uh, failures, as long as we have that, well, sure, we get hurt and we hurt others. There's a very important thing to know, how we get out of hurting ourselves and hurting others. Then that is, uh, as long as we do that, our pathway with the Buddha to the Buddha is blocked by that. So the pathway that we take when we take refuge is not that we're perfect. It's not that we can do it all. It's only that we know where we're going. And that's a very good thing to know. And by knowing where we're going, there is a protection. We feel protected in that knowing where we're going because all the other things which are going on in our minds and in the world and in the minds of others are not the pathway to the Buddha. And when they are not the pathway to the Buddha, they are not significant. And so we are protected from all that. That protection is essential. When we have that protection and can arouse it again and again within us, then there is safety and security. And that safety and security is not destructible 
Nobody can destroy it. Only we can destroy it with our own minds. And that's what we usually do. We destroy our own peace of mind. Nobody else can do it. People always try, but they can't do it if we don't let them. Now, by taking refuge in the Buddha and knowing that to be the pathway, then we have that kind of protection from all that other things, the other that arise. The Dhamma as a teaching is the most important thing. The Dhamma is the teaching, the truth, the law of nature, the law that all of us are subject to, the law of birth and death. We won't be here very long on this planet. How long? Who knows? And what are we doing in that time while we're here? Are we hurting ourselves and others? Are we having peevishness and pettiness in the mind? Are we having resistance and rejection and dislikes? Are we actually voicing them and saying them? Or are we having love and compassion? And the kind of giving of ourselves to the practice, which means that eventually there won't be anybody left who's practicing. So how much of that are we doing and how much of the other are we doing? If we take refuge in the Dhamma, we know that that's what we want to do. It doesn't mean we can do it already. It just means that we want to do it. The more negativity, the more nastiness, the more dislikes, the more thinking of that and the more voicing of that, the unhappier we become. The Dhamma is just the opposite. The Dhamma points straight at the truth. It points straight at that which can make us completely secure. And if it points straight at that, we all we can do is follow it. So if we take refuge in the Dhamma as the truth and the law of nature, as that which will be the one thing that can really take away all dukkha, all negative states, which is the only thing that makes us completely secure, again, we feel protected by it. The Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner, the Buddha said, but we've got to practice from morning to night, not meaning to sit on a little pillow. Practicing means purifying our mind states, purifying our heart states. That's practice. This is meditation. That's not just practice. Practice is from morning to night, purification. And every time we see a negativity, know it that it's ours and that we are going to suffer from it. Nobody else. And if we can't see that, the Dhamma is miles away. As long as we think it's somebody else's, we haven't seen Dhamma. Our protection lies in the fact that Dhamma is true and Dhamma is straight and we can follow it. But only if we are able to let go of our own viewpoints and opinions which think that they know so much more than everybody else, which is a very human thing to do. But the Dhamma is transcending humanness, and so is Buddha. And that transcending, that's our protection.
and Sangha does not mean everybody who sits on a pillow with crossed legs or builds little huts on med- in meditation centers. It means those who became enlightened following the Buddha's path and propagating the Dhamma to the point where it's available to us now. We are in a very fortunate position. We have the whole of it available to us now, but we've got to be able to listen. The Buddha said, there are a few people with little dust in their eyes. A few. He didn't say how few. But even in his time, there were few. Today, there are so few, it's becoming almost a rarity with little dust in their eyes. That is not the physical eye, that's the inner eye. And that inner eye which knows where the path is, and the path is in our own heart and in our own mind. Where is it? Every negative thought takes us off the path. Every negative reaction takes us off the path. Obviously, that happens to us. But taking refuge in that which is the truth and has been propagated by those who have seen the truth for themselves within their own heart helps us again and again to remember, I have taken refuge in the highest. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha are called the T. Ratanas. T is three Ratanas jewel, the three jewels. That's just an expression. But it is supposed to show that there's nothing higher, much higher than a human being. But every human being can be equally of that high ideal. We all have that capacity. But if we're completely covered in dust inside, that dustiness which we don't clean out, then, of course, we can't see it. Now, the Sangha are those who have given us the Dhamma. So we have great gratitude because the Buddha has of course, passed it on to his disciples and those disciples passed it on to theirs. And there's a long lineage, two and a half thousand years worth of lineage. And that lineage are the enlightened ones who kept teaching us. And that teaching is now here in front of you and has been there for the past four weeks. Is it in your heart and your mind? Or is it still on the tapes? Never mind. If it's still on the tapes, you can still hear it there. It's in the books and the discourses of the Buddha. But the main thing is the personal transmission. That's what the Buddha did. He personally transmitted the Dhamma. And that has been going on for two and a half thousand years. The personal transmission. And if one can't hear it, then one has to wait another while till one hears it again. It's not just that what one can do. That's part of it. 
It's how one hears it. Twenty people hearing the same thing hear at least 21 versions because one goes home, goes to bed and says, maybe this way, maybe that way. The Dhamma doesn't really have a maybe. It's got one pathway only, getting rid of self, of the I am this or I am that. I know this and I know that. I have this and I have that. And I really am this person who knows. Getting rid of all that, that's the pathway of the Dhamma. Now, everything else leads in that direction. And taking refuge means taking shelter. Shelter in the highest. The highest which can be our own within us when it becomes so much ingrained in heart and mind that there is never again any doubt what is real and what isn't. Now that, we have, of course, we have to do ourselves. Nobody can do it for us. And not only can nobody do it for us, we've got to be ready and willing to do that. And every time we're ready and willing, it means letting go a little bit of self. Every time we want to do something with the Dhamma, it points away from self. Now that's something that may or may not have become clear in the past four weeks. I'm sure some haven't seen it. But that's the only reason why it's difficult. There is no other reason. Away from self. And the more there is self, the more difficult it is to practice. Because it leads in the opposite direction. And it isn't a loss of self. It's nothing but a loss of self-delusion. That's all. That delusion which is constantly rearing its ugly head and saying, this is what I want to do. We should constantly see, is this what the Buddha wants to do? That means taking refuge. Is that the way the Buddha practiced? And we can find out how he practiced. It's all available. Refuge gives us a place of safety and security where we know what we're at and where we know what we're going to become. Nobody. Very pleasant. If there's nobody there, nobody gets hurt. But by the same token, if there's nobody there and nobody gets hurt, we have to have that understanding of how to actually do that because otherwise it's always me practicing. Taking refuge means that we are willing to give up. Not that we have already given up the me, but we're willing to do so. And it means that we feel that there is great help from Buddha Dhamma Sangha. The other thing that we do is taking the precepts. Not to kill, not to take what's not given, no sexual misconduct, no wrong speech, 
and no intoxicants and drugs. And the way it's worded is we undertake the training to refrain from. That means we train ourselves in abstaining, in renouncing. What do we renounce? The most basic greed and hate. These are the most basic things which mess up people's lives. Alcohol, drugs, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, backbiting, talking about other people behind their backs badly, gossiping, it's all included in wrong speech, idle chatter, all these things mess up people's lives. The more of that is happening, lying, backbiting, um, talking badly, the more of that we do, the more negative input we have and the more we're opening ourselves to bad karma. Now these are abstaining, even if we feel very desirous of doing those things, then the abstaining from them is one of the renunciations. If we want to stay the way we are and actually cultivate the seed of enlightenment in order to have something else within, because the way we are and then something on top of it, obviously that can't work. We've got to let go of something so that there's room for something new to grow. And as we let go of things... That's renunciation and abstaining. And as we let go of things and abstain and renounce our instinctive and impulsive behavior, we then have the opening to have the opposite kind of behavior, which is loving and helpful, generous and accepting, forgiving and having all those qualities we have talked about. I have given several talks on virtue. I don't just say these things because they seem to be interesting. I say them because the Buddha taught them. And the Buddha taught them not because they're just interesting, but he taught them because they are part of the pathway. And if they are not part of the pathway, the path is blocked. One can sit on this little pillow for the next 30 years and nothing happens unless one has virtue. Virtue is the basic requirement for spirituality and virtue means that the minimum is the keeping of the five precepts. These are the Buddha's words. They're the minimum requirement for virtue. And virtue is the requirement for the spiritual path. And if we can't do that, we train ourselves to do it. We train ourselves to let everything that is alive be alive. We don't go out to kill. If we accidentally do that because we step on ants or anything that's on the ground, that's not our intention. We don't take anything 
that hasn't been specifically given to us because we'd rather give than take. Instead of killing, we'd rather be helpful. We try to help on this pathway. With the sexual misconduct, it is the opposite is being faithful. The faithfulness and the reliability, our understanding of our duties and responsibilities towards others is all part of that precept. And with the speech one, we run up against the one that is most bothersome. We were supposed to have noble silence here, which would have removed the temptation for wrong speech, but it didn't, unfortunately. But in any case, it might have made it a little less than usual. The uh, temptation for wrong speech is always there because if we either lie or exaggerate, which makes us seem more important, if we talk about other people badly behind their backs, it makes us seem better. I am not like that. That person is like that. Talking about others behind their back badly is one of the popular pastimes and it is always connected with making bad karma. And that bad karma shows itself, of course, in the resultants that come from it, which then make meditation even more difficult. The uh, idle chatter, which everybody who meditates gets to know when they can't concentrate, because the mind chatters, chatters on and on and on unless it gets concentrated and tells stories which are of absolutely no consequence. That idle chatter we do in daily life. Why? Another escape route to get out of Dukkha. It doesn't work. All dead in streets. Every one of them. We can't keep on chattering. We can't keep on talking. There must be a moment of quiet and recognition. And that moment of quiet and recognition tells us quite clearly that we have Dukkha. And when we see we have Dukkha, there's only one thing to do, and that's to purify and concentrate. Nothing else. But we can't wait for somebody else to do it for us, and we can't wait for somebody else to tell us to do it. We've got to do it ourselves. Having somebody else tell it to us, that's all very well. Very often the mind says, I, don't, I won't do that. I'll do something else. Why? Because again, the me wants to show that it's there. The same with that uh, chatter, idle chatter. It's the one thing that proves that we're really there. The Buddha said that as an antidote for all five hindrances, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt, we have, as a common antidote, 
noble friends and noble conversation. What is noble conversation? That which is helpful, pointing the way of the Dhamma, pointing the way quite clearly, which way is the Dhamma, which way is the loss of self, which way is the practice. That's noble conversation. Noble conversation isn't talking about others. Noble conversation is never just idle chatter. Noble conversation has to be noble. And when it's noble, it comes out of a noble heart and mind. And when it comes out of a noble heart and mind, it has purpose and direction. It has depth and profundity. It has explanation and understanding. And that's what a noble friend has. A noble friend is not one who flatters. A noble friend is not one who agrees. A noble friend is not one who says everything is wonderful in the best of all worlds. A noble friend is one who points the way to practice. How? Why? In what way? Where? And when? That's a noble friend. A noble friend is one who understands the practice and can be helpful on the way. So we need a noble friend more than anything else. Ananda, the Buddha's attendant and cousin, said to the Buddha once, Sir, a noble friend is half of the holy life. The Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A noble friend is the whole of the holy life. A noble friend is one that's reliable, that we know we can trust. Trustworthiness is a noble friend. Can we trust anybody who talks badly about us? No. We have to trust people whom we know they can keep our own secrets, just as we will keep theirs trustworthiness. That's a noble friend, and a noble friend can only arise when there is a noble person behind it. Nobility is not our birthright. Nobility is not something that arises because of family. Nobility arises in mind and heart. To be noble means to be virtuous. But it means even more than that. It means also to know Buddha Dhamma Sangha as that which is the truth. Nobility in heart and mind is purification. So if we want a pathway which will always help us and will always show us how to get rid of the hindrances, we need noble friends and noble conversation. And conversation is ours. We converse. We talk. Can we see how we talk? Can we hear how we talk? Can we see how we think? Can we actually feel it? Nobility in heart and mind is the first requirement for a spiritual pathway. Without that, everything else is just self-cherishing.
and self-cherishing has never made anybody happy yet. It always brings with it a great deal of discontent because if we cherish ourselves, we never get enough. If we try to get rid of the self, there's an end to it. But to cherish the self, there's no end to it. There's always something else. So noble friends and noble conversation are the antidote not only for wrong speech, but they're also the antidote for all the hindrances which beset us. And conversation is the food for the mind. The more of it is wrong, the more poisonous it is for the mind. And the mind is poisoned. That is what we put into the mind, what we say, and then, of course, what we hear. So if we get involved in conversation, which is not noble, we either change the subject or walk away from it. Those are the only two choices. If we don't do that, we'll soon lose every little bit what we may have gained in concentration and insight in this course. Because it is absolutely poisonous for mind and heart. And it can become so poisonous that one can't do anything else anymore because one's been doing it over and over again for the past 20 or 30 years. So that is another thing that we can see. If we make a determination to keep the precepts, we will be reminded every time when we are either tempted to break them or actually breaking them that this is not the Buddha's path. And that reminder will keep us safe. Drugs and intoxicants confuse the mind no end. And as they confuse the mind, we can't meditate. So the uh, antidote for that is mindfulness. Now, that is one subject I will talk about again tomorrow. Because mindfulness is that what we can practice in everyday life. So drugs and intoxicants need to be shunned because the mind does not have the ability then to see clearly. It becomes somewhat um, foggy, even if not very foggy. These are our five basic precepts for our everyday conduct and to take these precepts and refuge before we go out into the world should be a great help to everyone who wants to take them to keep that in mind what we have been trying to learn here and to attain here just a reminder that this is what we need to do just a reminder that this is really our way of purification. A reminder that it's our way of spiritual life. A very simple reminder, because our spiritual life has many more facets, has many more 
um, extensions, but this is a simple reminder. The precepts and the refuge. Now before we actually do it, now is the time to ask questions about it. And then I'll say how we will do it for those who want to do it. But if you have questions, please ask them now. Everything perfectly clear. No problems. All right. The way we're going to do it is we're going to, each person who wants to take precept and refuge as not only a reminder of the course, but as a reminder of the spiritual path, as a safety precaution for one's spiritual life, as a guideline where to go, as a feeling of commitment and a feeling of connection to all those people who have taken refuge and precept. We will do that by, the candles will be lit, by lighting an incense and putting it in that bowl there and offering the flowers that we have brought to the shrine. The flowers are offered to the shrine not just because flowers look pretty, but for the reason that flowers depict impermanence. And one of the very popular chants in Pali are, just as the flowers are beautiful today and will be gone tomorrow, so are we. And if we can't, and most people can actually, look at that, but there's always somebody who can't, we have a really stuck idea about our permanence. It's essential that we see our own impermanence. Only when we see our own impermanence, see it with an inner eye, with a real appreciation what it means, do we know how to live each day. Because then each day becomes important. It could be our last one. Each hour becomes important. It could be our last one. Each minute becomes important. It could be our last one. Only when we realize that impermanence within us and live accordingly have we understood at least some of the Buddha's teaching. If we don't want to do that, the Buddha's teaching is far away. So the flowers which we offer are nothing but a symbol of that, of that impermanence. And um, even these planted in, uh, in a pot are now letting their heads hang. Uh, those that are you going to put there, they're not even going to be put in water. They're all ready for the garbage heap tomorrow. And so are we. Maybe not tomorrow, but as soon as this body gives out. The incense is a symbol for virtue. It is said that the beautiful smell 
of incense goes far and wide, and by the same token, the beautiful smell of a virtuous person goes far and wide. It has impact. The person need not do anything in particular. Virtue has its own dignity. Non-virtue is not dignified. And that dignity is something that is just plainly visible. So we have here the symbolism of not that it's just visible, but it has a beautiful aroma, the incense aroma. The candles on the shrine depict enlightenment. People have all sorts of personal viewpoints about enlightenment, and that is another thing about viewpoints. We always have viewpoints about the things we don't know. Because once we know them, we don't have to have a viewpoint. We have personal experience. And that's why the Buddha said he didn't have any personal views. He had the experience. So all our viewpoints are nothing but having ideas about what we don't know. The light, the candlelight, is the light in the mind. It's totally clear, clarified. It's light without a shadow. It is brilliant and it doesn't have any corners where they can hide any negative reactions. Because the only thing that a Buddha, an enlightened one, would want or would do would be to help others to find exactly that enlightenment in the mind. And that was the Buddha did for 45 years of his life. The enlightenment in the mind is the symbolism is this uh, candle which gives light. It gives light when there's darkness. And it is not only clear but it also is warm. And the warmth of it is also embedded in enlightenment. The statue itself, in our case here, is not the statue of the Buddha. It's a statue of Kuan Yin, which is a symbolism for the compassion of the Buddha. And it's actually borrowed from the Chinese tradition, from which we're borrowing a fair bit of things these days, but it is uh, something which helps us to have a feminine symbol in this tradition. Because obviously the Buddha is, was male, and uh, the uh, statues that we have of the Buddha, although they do not depict what he looked like, nobody knows what he looked like, they are still um, more male than female. The, uh, each Buddha statue that you will find anywhere at all in this world depicts nothing but the idea of the artist who made the statue. Now here we have the female symbolism, which is appropriate for this uh, uh, course with a female teacher. And obviously we do not worship a statue. We worship an idea. We worship the idea of enlightenment. That's all. So when we actually do the, the um, offering of the flowers and the incense, we 
prostrate three times to this um, shrine with the candles and with the flowers and with the incense. And the prostration is for Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Now, obviously, they are not here, so they are a mind contact. And we're prostrating to the symbol and principle of enlightenment, to the symbol and the Dhamma of truth, of uh, law of nature. And we're prostrating to Sangha, who has given us this uh, teaching, propagated it, and we're prostrating because we are not only grateful that we have this teaching and to the Buddha for having given it to us and the Sangha for having given it to us, but we're also committing ourselves to trying to manifest it, to become the Dhamma. Nothing else matters. Each person becomes the Dhamma. Everything else is totally by the way and should be shunned like the plague. The negativity should be shunned. So if we have that commitment of trying to manifest it in ourselves, the gratitude for having received it, and the uh, reverence for the highest which is available, that could be mind states when we prostrate. Whatever mind states there are, they are to our own benefit or to our own problem, whatever mind state we have. Enlightenment is also a mind state. Non-enlightenment is also a mind state. Everything we do are mind states, and then we manifest them in the way we look, in the way we behave, in the way we act in the way we speak all our mind states so whatever we do when we prostrate these are our mind states these are suggestions there can be love in the heart for Buddha Dhamma Sangha reverence, gratitude there can be appreciation there can be a great deal of admiration it's another symbolism and it's also a greeting, which is used very much in the East. In, uh, instead of just saying, how are you, or shaking hands, it's a greeting from the heart. The, um, in fact, what it is explained as is, my heart touches your heart. With whatever is in my heart to touch your heart with. So here we take refuge in precepts from the heart. And only then are they meaningful. Now one can take these as many times as one has an opportunity. Should one take them and break them, which is not unusual, one just needs to take them again in the privacy of one's own home. If there is monk or nun around, it is helpful to take them in public. It's like a public statement, I am trying. I am undertaking the training to refrain from. But it's not necessary. One can do it in one's own home. And it's just like making a new determination. And this is sometimes uh, people ask what to do when they break one of the precepts. Now, how strong one keeps them, or how 
lenient one is with one's uh, uh, way of keeping precepts is entirely up to each person. It's only when one sees the bad results that come to one because of having made bad karma that one becomes more and more stringent with oneself on this path of purification. This is not a kind of um, blaming or a kind of uh, um, forcing oneself. It's a purification path. Now, are there any questions? And those <clears throat> those of you who like to take uh, refuge in precepts, put your hand in Anjali. And I will chant in Pali first, and then I will say it in English, and then you repeat it after me in English. Don't need to learn a foreign language so quickly. <laughs> <coughs> Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasam I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhammang Saranangachami I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Do te ampi sanghang saranangachami. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the 
Hatiampi sang hung saranga charming. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Saranagamanang sampunang panati patavaramani sika padam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame sumichachara veramani sika padam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Padam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh speech. I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh speech. Padam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. That means, may the taking of the refuge and precepts be for your benefit and happiness. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. And now become aware of love and respect in your heart for your own virtue, your own goodness, your own practicing. Let love and respect fill you for yourself and surround you.
put your attention on the person nearest you in this room and fill that person with your love and respect for his or her virtue and goodness for his or her practice training give your love and respect to that person Offer your love and respect to everyone here as your gift to each person. Fill everyone with your respect for their virtue and goodness and surround everyone with your love. Think of your parents. Offer them your love and respect as your gift. Respecting their goodness and loving with a heart that is pure. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. 
those you might live together or those you might see again soon when you get home. Respect them for all the virtues that you know about them. Love them with an open and pure heart. And think of all your friends. Offer them your love and respect as your gift. Respect their virtue. Love their goodness. Think of other people you know, neighbors, acquaintances, relatives, people you work with, anyone you can think of. Fill each one with your respect and embrace each one with your love. Now think of any one person with whom you have difficulties, where you have negativities in your mind and heart. Give that person your full respect for his or her virtues and embrace that person with your love so that your own heart doesn't have any blockages.
Now open your heart as wide as you can and let as many people enter into it as possible. Being embraced by your love and filled with your respect Open the heart ever wider so that more and more people can find room in there until it's so large that it can embrace the whole planet and all the beings. And now offer your love and respect to Buddha Dhammasaka. The great respect for the greatest good. The all-embracing love for the highest ideal. And then make Buddha Dhamma Sangha and yourself become one, merging into each other. So that only Buddha Dhamma Sangha remains and your love and respect embracing that.
may all beings become enlightened.